Well, be seated, because we have a longer passage. But turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 42. It's not as long as it looks from the text. One chapter is kind of short, but it is two chapters we're going to look at today. Jeremiah chapter 42 and 43. And so turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles. Jeremiah 42, this is God's word. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan the son of Korea, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest, came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you, and pray to the Lord your God for us. For all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your requests, and whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. At the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you, to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. But if you say, we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there, then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt." And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. And the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, As my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt." You shall become an execration, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. You shall see this place no more. The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for a certainty that I have warned you this day, that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you. But you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. Now therefore know for, know for a certainty that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go live. 
When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of Korea and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You're telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has sent you against, set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan the son of Korea and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan the son of Korea and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived at Tapanes. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Tapanes. Take in your hands large stones, and hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tapanes, in the sight of the men of Judah, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence, to captivity those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword those who are doomed to the sword. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive." And he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. And he shall go away from there in peace. He shall break the obelisks of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt. He shall burn with fire. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, now we come to your word. And, and we need this, but we, we need your spirit's work to to help us to see, to help us to understand uh, the importance of this that you sovereignly included in the Scriptures. Help us to see its importance for our lives. The importance of your Word itself, that we are not to treat it trivially, that we are not to pick and choose, but we are to seek to understand the whole counsel of God as revealed in your Word. And so would you help us to that end to this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, we come to another episode in the book of Jeremiah. We are getting toward the end. Um, I had someone ask this week how much longer. We're, we're close, and there's 52 chapters, I think, so we're getting there. Um, but this is another representative story, it seems like. like this, could, this could represent the whole of the book in many ways, because you have the people who seem genuine, they seem to be seeking to hear God's word, but then as the story unfolds, you realize their minds are already made up. They've already planned in their hearts what they will do. And I think in some ways it's comforting because when we see things, comforting in this way, when we see things happen similarly in our day, it makes us at least aware that we're not alone. <laughs> you know, there's nothing new under the sun. We're not the first people to start doing this. It goes back at least this far. 
know, when people go to Scripture, rather than going to God's Word and saying, what is God speaking? What is He telling? What are we to understand? They go instead with their own opinions, thoughts, and perspectives to maybe cherry-pick a verse or a line in a verse or a phrase to support their own notion. We've seen people do this. It's happened in politics. I'm picking on politics because it's a fair... Um, it's a fair target in this. Just this, this, just recently, uh, the governor of California uh, sponsored his name's on it. I'm not sure where all the money comes from, but sponsored an ad campaign uh, for for abortion. Do you need an abortion? That was it. Was it was saying you know in a sense we, we're offering this, and there were several of these ads. But on the bottom of the ad was a quote from the Bible verse Mark twelve thirty one. The quote was. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Well, of course, that negates or neglects all of the teaching of Scripture about life and about death, particularly about abortion. But more importantly, it omits the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Interesting that they would seem to cherry-pick the part of the phrase they want. Others might do this with other verses. Turn the other cheek is a common one if people are in opposition maybe to a war policy or to the Second Amendment or something like that. Or people that have embraced an errant view on sexuality will quote, judge not lest ye be judged. Or if there's someone in office that you don't care for, you might quote Psalm 109.8, may his days be few, may another take his office, right? It's cute. But that's not what that text is speaking about, although maybe you could justify praying that. Speaking about a specific setting. And, and my point is, is, it's not just in misrepresenting Scripture that we go wrong, but it's also ignoring what Scripture teaches. And we can be tempted to do this as we read through Scripture, to look at those verses that cause us to think self-righteously, like, I'm doing that, like, mm, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing that. And then you kind of just glance past the verse that, you know, you're clearly blowing it on. It's not a big deal. Just keep moving. This is not new in our day. It wasn't new in Jeremiah's day. We can go all the way back to the garden and hear the voice of the serpent say to Eve, Did God really say? The temptation to do what we want, to make our own plans without considering God's will, all while hoping to find justification in His Word, is misguided and it's foolish. And we see that unfold in this account. Think for a moment just who God is. God is the all-powerful creator who made all things and who upholds all things by his power. He sovereignly rules so that the wind and the waves obey him and the hearts of kings are like water in a channel. He knows the end from the beginning. Indeed, he knows all things And his purposes will stand because he does all that he pleases. Why would we not want to hear God's word on a matter or seek his direction in our decision making? Why would we ever want to resist his commandments when the spirit convicts us through his word that we're in sin? Why would we ever think to make our own plans and then stick to those plans if we find out God opposes such things? And yet, this is what we do when we're tempted to cheat on our taxes, lie on business forms, withhold giving generously what God has entrusted to us. 
It's what we do when we jump online to engage in gossip, to read something salacious or to look at images we know that are sinful. It's when we lie to our neighbor to impress them or because we don't want to offend them. It's what we do when we let bitterness grow in our hearts, when we plan malicious acts against each other to hurt one another, to join in coarse talk, to fit in in a group at work or school or simply to vent our anger. Again and again, there are examples in our daily lives. This isn't just about the big stuff. Should we go to Egypt or not? It's about all the stuff. Where we stiff-arm God's law, we stiff-arm His Word and we push it away, thinking, what I want, what I've planned, what my idea of hope or safety is, that's where true wisdom is found. And that's what this small remnant of Judah is doing in this passage. They, are, they think they know best how to find a secure future, regardless of what God has to say to them through his prophet. And so, as we left the group last week at the end of chapter 41, Jeremiah has already told us which direction they're going. In a sense, there is, we already know, before we even read this morning, the direction, what they've planned in their hearts. They're going to Egypt. And I think Jeremiah includes that detail to show us the pattern of their behavior uh, in doing this. We're introduced again to Johanan, who we've met before, along with this other leader, Jezaniah. He's called Azariah, uh, but he's got the same father. It's the same guy. Some of these folks had two names. Not really sure why. Both are used here, but Johanan and, 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 uh, and Jezaniah are the two leaders. Now, Johanan seemed like such a stand-up guy when we met him before because he, if you remember, he was the one who wanted to, to defend Gedaliah, protect him, really, uh, from the assassination attempt. He wanted to go and kind of do a preemptive strike against Ishmael when he heard the rumor that Ishmael was coming to kill Gedaliah. He wouldn't allow him. So we look at Johanan in that aspect and think, you know, he's got some courage. But here in this account, we see a more disappointing aspect of his character. So these two leaders come. And Jeremiah describes the people, all the people from the least to the greatest. This means everybody was of the same mind. They had all come together. They were all convinced that Egypt was their only hope. You can imagine how this would happen around the campfires in the evening as the meals are prepared, all the rumors and the gossip and the scuttlebutt that was occurring, how people you know, encourage each other of all the many fears from King Nebuchadnezzar coming to get them. Egypt's the place to go. Egypt's the place to go. And it's sad because they've had Jeremiah as their prophet for nearly 40 years. And it's like they've forgotten everything he's ever said. They've forgotten the fact that what he said came true. <laughs> That, you know, this is clearly a prophet from God because what he has prophesied has come to pass. They've not only forgotten what Jeremiah has said and what has happened, but they've forgotten the, the hope. You know, even in the midst of all the judgment, Jeremiah has offered words of hope that there would be restoration in the coming day. And so the people are despondent. They plan to go to Egypt, but they, they go through this act of coming to Jeremiah, and at first it seems genuine. If we hadn't read through the whole passage already, you wouldn't know at first that they were going to get off track. And so at first they say, you know, we're making a plea for mercy. But you notice something's off in how they say this to Jeremiah when they suggest that he pray to the Lord, your God, for us. It's not the Lord our God, it's the Lord your God that they want him to pray to. But still they go on to profess that whatever Yahweh says they'll do, no matter what. It's kind of over the top, really, uh, in how they express it. Sounds right, 
But as we see the story unfold, we realize their hearts were far away from obedience. Jeremiah agrees to pray. You may remember before he wouldn't pray for the people after they had rebelled for so long. At one point in his ministry, he stopped praying for them. It seems that whatever that ban or restriction was is now removed now that the destruction of Jerusalem is over. And so he agrees. He says, I will pray, but he turns the word around. He says, I will pray to the Lord your God. He reminds them that they belong to Yahweh. And then he adds for emphasis, verse 4, Whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you, I will keep nothing back from you. This has been Jeremiah's ministry all along. He has been a faithful prophet. And so the people respond with what seems like respect and reverence. They promise to obey whatever, whatever the news is, Jeremiah. Whatever you bring to us, we'll do it. They sound so sure of themselves. And if we hadn't read on, we have no reason not to take them at their word, except maybe their past track record. <laughs> you kind of begin to wonder by chapter 42 how, how this is going to go, and you kind of already know. But, you know, maybe this remnant's different. They've, they've seen the deliverance of, of, of their, their, the protection that they've experienced. As the others were carried away into exile, God protected them in the land. And, and even the whole issue with Gedaliah getting murdered and, and Ishmael carrying them away, they were delivered again. Maybe, maybe their hearts were turned. Maybe they were soft now. Maybe they really meant this. But notice, no matter what they say, no matter what their outward demeanor is, no matter what vocabulary they use, the proof is in the pudding. You ever encountered this in relationships? You meet people, they say the right things, they use the right words, but they seem to never come through. They make promises and promises, but they backtrack again and again. Proverbs 20.25 says, It is a snare to say rashly, it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. Or Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. We might think of Ananias and Sapphira and their behavior. See, lying is forbidden by God, not simply because it is an affront to Him. It is first and foremost an affront to Him. But it is also ruinous to life and community. Because what happens when you get lied to? You start to distrust You certainly distrust that person, but you get jaded. You start to distrust other people, maybe that remind you of that person or that say similar things to that person. And if the lying continues, it becomes easier to fall into suspicion of everyone, to imagine the worst of others. Suddenly, everyone is guilty, everyone's a boogeyman, and all the lying and the broken promises bring out about a harvest of fear in our hearts. We think everyone is lying to us. So lying is never innocent. There's a ripple effect. Even if you think, I'm not hurting anyone by my lies, that's naive. It's foolish. The ripple effects are far and wide. So Jeremiah then seeks the Lord in prayer on behalf of the people. And after 10 days, we're not told why the 10 days, but there's a waiting period here. The Lord gives a word back to him. And so he calls the people from the least to the greatest again. Everyone's here, Johanan, the leader. But the message is not what the people want to hear. The message is, is absolutely clear. I mean, there's, there's no guesswork in it. He says directly, and then he says, I'm saying it directly, don't go to Egypt. Do not go to Egypt. Now, when Jeremiah delivers this, he prefaces it with, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, reminding them, this is not my opinion. This is not my perspective. This is not my, you know, this is not, I'm not a consultant here. I'm delivering the message from the Lord. It is from the Lord, the God of Israel, whom... To you, to, to, you know, you sent me to him. 
right? You gave me this instruction. I did the task that you asked me to do. And now I'm, don't, you know, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just delivering the goods to you. And so he comes to the people with this message. And the message is presented with these two if-then statements. The first is, if they stay, they will be delivered from all danger. If they go, they will receive what they fear, the sword, famine, and pestilence. In other words, it's backwards to their way of thinking. Because they believe if they stay, they'll get sword, famine, and pestilence, and if they go, they'll have safety. And God comes to them and says, do what I say, because the opposite is actually true. You don't have eyes to see it. You can't see it. It doesn't make sense to you. But this is what I'm telling you to do, and this is what the outcome is going to be. All very opposite. But obeying God is not simply conformity to the law. It is to be done in faith. Scripture tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Are we to conform to the law? Yes. But we're to do it in faith. We're to do it trusting Him. And faith requires of us doing things sometimes that don't make sense. Obeying God doesn't always make sense. Think about practicing disciplines in your life. You might think in the realm of entertainment. You may have friends, family, watch certain shows, go see certain movies, but you're convicted that this isn't pleasing to God, I'm not going to watch it. And you feel like a weirdo for not knowing what the story is or what the next season holds. Choosing contentment with what you have instead of reaching beyond your means for more stuff and more pleasure just because everyone else is doing it. It's the, you know, you, you only live once kind of syndrome that, that, that has invaded our culture. Putting on the virtues of the world to contra- that, that contradict Scripture, virtues that go against Scripture, just to be accepted or to be liked, to be invited into a crowd, or to make money, tempted to do things in your business to try and look more appealing, simply to make a dime. You see, we can be tempted to go along with the ways of the world because it seems wise in our own eyes. We look at it without eyes of faith, and it seems like this is the way to go, even though God's Word convicts us that it's not. See, to the people of Judah, staying in the land meant threats from Babylon. They they just knew Nebuchadnezzar was going to come back and he was going to get them. It meant political unrest with whatever army he had left there. It meant possible starving. They they didn't have eyes to see that they could ever have abundance beyond what they had just gathered. Going to Egypt in their eyes, well, perfect solution. We're far away from Nebuchadnezzar. There's food, abundance, and there's safety. In their eyes, Egypt was the solution. But God calls them to faith, to trust him, and to believe his word instead of their own eyes and their own wisdom. And notice that he says to them when he promises in this if-then statement, he promises to build them up instead of tearing them down. He promises to plant them instead of plucking them out of the ground, to not repeat the disaster that was done repeatedly or, or previously in Jerusalem. And then additionally, he adds that he will protect them from Nebuchadnezzar so that they don't have to fear him. The very one that they fear, he's promising to them, I'm going to keep you safe from Nebuchadnezzar. And then, to top all of that off, he says, not only am I going to protect you from him, that you don't have to fear him, I'm actually going to show mercy to you through Nebuchadnezzar. The enemy. The one who came and gathered up all of your friends and family and took them away into exile, into Babylon. The one that you're so afraid of, I'm going to show you mercy through him, demonstrating his power over nations and kings. 
The promises, if they stay, are the promises of hope and abundance, of safety and prosperity, of shalom, of true peace, if they will stay and trust the Lord. You might note that the first two lines of the promise are the same lines that God used to Jeremiah in chapter 1 when he commissioned him as a prophet. Jeremiah 1.10, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. There were those four statements of judgment and two of promise, but here they're all of promise. God turns them around and says to them, if they would stay in the land, I'm going to bless you. But if they refuse, he says to them, if you rely instead on your own understanding and you go to Egypt, then the promise is the sword that you fear will overtake you. You won't get away from it. The famine that you're afraid of will follow closely and chase after you. And ultimately, you will die there. The very things they were most afraid of, the very things they were tempted to run from and escape, it would be those very things that would find them in Egypt and would capture them. Sword, famine, and pestilence, the trifecta of judgment that Jeremiah uses again and again, that was what was in store for the people if they ran to Egypt. So there is no ambiguity. There is no guesswork. This isn't mysterious as to what they, we should do. You know, sometimes like, you know, Lord, where should I go to school? What job should I take? You know, there's some mystery in it. There's none of that here. God is, is, is absolutely clear on what he wants for his people. Do not go to Egypt. Obey, stay in the land, you'll be blessed. Disobey, go to Egypt, and you'll be cursed. The message isn't over. He goes on and he says, what's going to happen if you do go will be like Jerusalem 2.0. It's going to happen all over again. Everything that was experienced, the judgment that rained down on Jerusalem by the hands of the Babylonians, that's going to happen to you if you go to Egypt. He calls them, he says to them, they will become an execration, a horror, and a curse, along with a taunt in verse 18. Execration isn't a word, um, it's not a word I use very much, but I'm guessing I haven't heard many other people use it, but it's, it's the object of a curse, that they would become that. Not a curse itself, because he goes on to call them that, but the object of a curse, that people would turn it into something that they use to curse, a horror to see, uh, something that was accursed itself, and of course a taunt, an insult. Judah would become this if they chose to disobey. And then he caps it off with the promise that they would see the promised land no more. That is, if you go to Egypt, you're going to die there. You're not going to come back. Now, Jeremiah, and you notice the language kind of change. It, it's, it, the, the way it's written, it doesn't say where, where the Lord's message stops and Jeremiah's message starts. But you, you notice in the tenses of the verbs how Jeremiah starts speaking directly to them as Jeremiah and, and it's, this, it's this, um, this notion that Jeremiah sees on their faces what they're thinking. Or maybe he just knows from their behavior. Maybe they were jeering at him. Maybe they were already yelling, shouting, no way, uh-uh, or shaking their heads or whatever. But Jeremiah understands that they've already made their minds up. And so he begins telling them that this is what awaits. And so he ends at the end of chapter 42, the promise, knowing that they've made up their minds to go to Egypt that what awaits you in Egypt is sword, famine, and pestilence. And then the people speak back, and they say exactly what Jeremiah surmised. Johanan, Azariah, along with all the insolent men, or the insolence describing their attitude, that they were rude and disrespectful. That's what makes me think that that was evident. You know, when someone's being rude and disrespectful, they don't have to speak. 
You can know people are already in opposition to you uh, by the looks on their faces, uh, by, by their demeanor. And so uh, the, the, the whole attitude that, that was among these men was that of insolence. And they start out by accusing Jeremiah of lying. God didn't send you. You're telling a lie. And then they bring Baruch into the mix. And this is interesting because what has Baruch ever done? <laughs> you know, Baruch's kind of been, the, he's, he's, he's Jeremiah's scribe. He's been this silently working in the background. He's, he's the one who gets things done, uh, but he hasn't been any, in any sense leading. And so they, they, they're, they're implying something here about Baruch. Now, it's true that Jeremiah's much older at this point. This is near the end, and so he's, he's older. But I think more, uh, a more significant aspect of his health was the fact that he had been abused so much physically. If you think of being in the stocks, if you think of being thrown in the well, if you think of the beatings and so forth, uh, his body had been racked by this experience. And so maybe because Baruch is the able-bodied one of the two of them, uh, that they're you know, choosing to place them. We're not told why, but the implication is that somehow Baruch has these loyalties to Babylon and that he's simply, this is all just a political scheme. Baruch's just trying, he's, he's pro-Babylon, he's just trying to get us to stay here so the king can come back and get us. That's what all this is about. So they refuse to believe. They double down in their rebellion against the Lord and they begin leading the people away, including Jeremiah and Baruch with them. And I think that even though it's not said, it would have been by force. I don't know that Jeremiah and Baruch would have wanted to go, maybe so. But they began heading south toward Egypt on. And the first major Egyptian city that they would have come to is this Tapanes. And Tapanes is a place where Pharaoh had a palace. It would have been like an embassy, an outpost. This is where the Pharaoh would have stayed, but it would have been the government offices. This would have been representative of the nation of Egypt. And so it becomes symbolic then for this final act that Jeremiah is going to do. You know, we've seen Jeremiah do these acts that are symbolic, instructive to the people. And this is the last one in, in the book of Jeremiah that we see him do. He's told to take large stones and to place them in the pavement at the entrance of the palace. And then the Lord provides the explanation. The stones are to be a foundation for, ba- for Babylon's throne, Nebuchadnezzar's throne. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and reign over Egypt. His royal canopy would be spread. It says, dominion over the land, and with it bringing pestilence, the sword, and captivity to the people of Judah. In other words, the very things that they feared, what Jeremiah had warned them about through the, through the message from the Lord, all of this is going to happen. And these stones were these visual reminders, these visual testimonies that this was going to happen. The king's army, the Babylonian king's army is also pictured as a shepherd in verse 12 who cleans his cloak of vermin. I don't know the last time you dealt with vermin, but the word here for vermin is actually lice. Uh, and so it's the idea of, of picking lice off the cloak and just tossing them. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is going to come do. He's so powerful at this point the world-dominant power. And what actually happened, we're not going to get into this, but just as a little teaser, he did come. It was more of a skirmish than an all-out war because the, the pharaoh at the time just 
totally, you know, s- surrendered to him. And he did exert power over this. But uh, the, the, the destruction that happened, whatever it was, there's, there's a few fragments of accounts of this, included the destruction of their temples, their, their places of worship. And we're going to see this more in the message to the nations that includes Egypt in, in the coming chapters as to why this happened. But what seemed right in the eyes of the people of Judah, what seemed right to them in their own understanding, proved utterly foolish because they refused to hear the word of God. So the message is clear. Rejecting God's word leads to destruction. Now in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the writer there talks about a similar action of the people of God. It wasn't this account, but you know, the people of God did this more than once where they refused to listen to the word of God. It says that, that they refused to obey the voice of the Lord. And then he, he notes, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest... This is Hebrews 3, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief, lack of faith. They were disobedient because they did not believe. And the same is true when we dismiss God's word, when we, again, stiff arm what God's word says to us and we trust instead what we think is wisdom in our own eyes. Now we understand this when it comes to salvation. If we reject the gospel given in God's word, if we reject what he has provided for us in Christ, then we are destined to receive what is our just judgment. And what is that? But the wages of sin is death. And not just death in a physical sense, but eternal judgment in hell. That is what awaits us if we reject his message of salvation. But the verse goes on, the free gift is eternal life. That comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It is forgiveness of all of our sins. It is His righteousness credited to our accounts. And so to enter the rest of God that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here requires faith. But to walk with Christ requires continued faith. To attempt to do anything on our own is futile. To attempt to try anything in our own strength, in our own power, in our own wisdom will fail. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The fruit that he's describing here of abiding in is only as we abide in. The fruit is only born on our branches as long as we are connected to the root of the vine. The minute we try and do things in our own strength, our own power, and our own wisdom, we become fruitless. This means listening to his word, not coming at it looking for the proof texts, not coming at it looking for, for things to bolster our own ideas, but listening to His Word and submitting our wills to His will revealed in His Word. It means applying our faith to trust His Word, even when what our eyes see can make more sense than what we read in its pages. It means repenting when we stray from His Word in disobedience, allowing the Spirit's conviction to bring us back to the truth. And fourth, and listen to this closely, it means believing the love of God for us 
and that He has made us His children. It means believing God loves us because He's made us His children. Paul expresses this so beautifully in the opening prayer, where really he's describing how he's been praying for the, for the Colossians. And in chapter 1, as he, as he introduces the letter to them, he says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. This is how he prayed, Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the knowledge of his truth leads us to spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just being able to say the right words. But it turns into walking in a manner that is worthy, bearing fruit. I keep talking about this. What is the fruit? What is the fruit? Go, fruit of the Spirit, go back, look at it. I mean, there's so much there. I feel like we could, we could wake up every morning and look at the fruit of the Spirit and just be like, you know, I'll, there's, there's more than enough days work here. <laughs> But it's not our job to do this fruit. It's His fruit in us. And so this is by faith, as we're strengthened with all power, for endurance in joy, giving thanks to God for this inheritance that we have been redeemed, that we have been made His children, and that He loves us. So God has spoken to us in His Word that we might know, that we might believe, that we might walk in obedience, filled with thankfulness and joy. So let me end with what the writer in Hebrews goes on to say. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Striving is by faith, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Many of us know that verse. And many of us could quote that verse, but remember the context of that verse now. The context of that verse is speaking to this very thing. That it is, do not, do not harden your hearts. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That striving in faith for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So may we go today with the, with the same way we open the service. This was our prayer. Um, Let's go today with this in mind. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And so often we, we neglect it. Uh, we mistreat it. We, we, we treat it as our own kind of justification for whatever we want to do or say or 
even believe at times. Other times, we, we, just, we, we push it away when it convicts. We dismiss it. And yet, what we've just read, we, we pray this again, Lord, that we would find your word delightful, beautiful, because it's, it's your word. It's your gift to us that is worth more than riches, that is sweeter than honey. Lord, may we come to love your word because we love you. And may we, because we love you and you, you, you've loved us first, Lord, we know that our love isn't the initiative here. You initiated this. You saved us. You made us your children. But would you, would you allow that love to continually transform us that we wouldn't be like Judah who, who made up their own minds no matter what you said to them, but would we come in humble reliance upon your spirit to your word and listen to it, to be corrected by it, to be instructed by it, to be encouraged and built up by it that in us you would create this beautiful fruit that you describe in these passages that we read this morning. Lord, do this work in us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.